Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Is that a lyric or suggestion? Invitation. (laughs) Hello again and welcome to episode 97 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all done through the prism of Billy Joel's imagination and his ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, we are going where no other podcast goes because no one else has Billy. Nobody has Billy, although fortunately, a few people do have birth control, (laughs) which is the topic of today. Birth control, what sort of thoughts come to you? (laughs) Here's my first thought, Katie. Uh, I'm one of five kids. My mum was one of eight kids. Her mother was one of 16. So there wasn't (gasps) a great deal of it going on in the Catholic side of the family. There was one thing I noticed at a formative phase. You know the point in your life where you realise with a lurch in your guts that your parents have had sex? Uh, yeah, when when did that happen for you? When? <laughs> Probably when I was about 13. And then I started thinking, well, hang on. So my mum's very Catholic. My dad's not at all Catholic. And then I think, well, hang on. So my big sister is born on the 30th of November, 1971. Almost exactly two years later, I'm born on the 5th of December, 1973. Almost exactly two years after that, my next sister is born on the 2nd of December, 1975. Katie, I count nine months back from that date and it takes you to my dad's birthday (laughs) could be nothing more than a flute Katie or it could be the result of a Catholic mother and a not Catholic father (laughs) a special treat for dad on his birthday well I have a personal connection to this whole birth control story which was uh, when I was a teenager I was actually prescribed birth control by my doctor because I had ovarian cysts or what looked like some sort of problem that was heading in that direction. So that was actually the drug that was prescribed to keep that at bay. But still, I felt that I needed to keep this a secret from my mother. I mean, obviously, I would never be talking about anything like this with my dad, but that little packet of birth control pills was tucked away in my dresser drawer. But, oh, surprise, surprise, mom found it. Don't know why she was rooting around, but oh, my word, she was perturbed by this. She was so upset. Both my parents were very conservative. And the way she brought it up for me was not as a teachable moment, not as a way (laughs) to have a a broadening and deepening discussion between mother and daughter. It was simply for her to intone the words, no, no, (laughs) no. So freaked out by the idea of her 18-year-old daughter having sex. And in fact, 
I wasn't having sex. That was the thing. I was like hoping. I was like, oh, good. I have this just in case in my back pocket in case I get lucky. And that wasn't even the case. And I remember making what I thought was a very reasoned response to her, which was to say, aren't you happy that I'm being responsible? And she was not happy about that. Uh, it was never mentioned again, um, and she didn't really elaborate on the no, no, no's. This is all to say that we already have lots of material before we bring in our expert in birth control. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Roach. She's the author of Good Sex, Transforming America Through the New Gender and Sexual Revolution. Catherine is also the Professor of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Alabama. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much, Katie and, and Tom. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, may I say you have the most interesting premise for a podcast. <laughs> well, it's about to get even more interesting. So we're talking about the pill here, but birth control has been used since ancient times. Let's review some of the olden days methods. Do you have any that come to mind? Well, yes, certainly. People have always tried to, to exert some control, right, over how soon they get pregnant, how often they get pregnant. But it wasn't always understood in very earliest times. There was a sense of magic to it or uh, that it was the will of the gods. So it's only gradually as uh, human history unfolded that we began the medical understanding of how conception happens. Even into the medieval period, there's this interesting sense that a woman couldn't get pregnant unless she had an orgasm during sex. So even then, the, the notion of what you had to do to either stop getting pregnant or get pregnant uh, was still developing medically. So early on, there were simple methods like uh, withdrawal and then methods like early versions of condoms made from like sheep intestines and such. None of these are absolutely effective. They can often in early efforts at birth control, uh, the goal wasn't 100% effectiveness like we think might be possible uh, with the pill or some very contemporary modern forms of birth control. If a woman could exert some control over how often she gets pregnant, that would be considered a success in family planning then. Yeah. Well, a couple of methods that came to mind for me, apparently in ancient Greece and the Near East, they used a variety of giant fennel that was so in demand that it became extinct. And then women <laughs> in the Middle Ages were encouraged to tie weasel testicles around their thighs <laughs> to prevent pregnancy. Now, probably not a good result for the lady or the weasel. And then one last one I'm going to throw in here. Um, perhaps we can learn from our animal friends. Apparently goat herders, this is nowadays, goat herders put a little apron on the male goats to prevent them from impregnating female goats. And I'm going to show Tom here a little photograph of a, thwar <laughs> a, a, thwart a thwarted billy goat. He's uh, making the, the humpback motions here and he has a cute little apron that is preventing <laughs> successful delivery. The only thing I'm disappointed by by the image that I'm seeing, Katie, and there's a lot to please the eye, is that the apron isn't your sort of classic kitchen apron. He hasn't got anything around his neck. No. It's more just of a sort of a band around his midriff. No, it's a little... I was thinking a little floral number with yeah. pockets in the front. But, but yeah, so he's, you know, you, you see the, the lady goat is patiently standing by and waiting for the uh, deposit 
That is not going to happen. That's that's just going to be. And I hope that is a wipe down apron. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's me. That's all my material I have for the episode today. Well, that's very interesting because the, it's the billy goat, the male who's being denied sexual pleasure, yes. sexual access, and who has to sort of bear the brunt of the contraception yes. there. Whereas often in in a lot of birth control, it's it's the female, it's women who are made to be responsible for it and to bear the trouble of dealing with it herself. Who's making the decisions about birth control? And this is a sort of related point. Who is making the decisions about who is using birth control at the start of the 20th century as the, as the century develops? So that's very interesting. And contraceptive devices, they're intended to prevent pregnancy or to uh, reduce the chance of pregnancy, but also... There's this, another effect here in at least some cases, which is to reduce the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. In that case, it is in the man's interest to be doing something to put some barriers. So those are barrier methods that prevent the STIs, STDs, particularly in a context where women are seen as dangerous or dirty, a source of sexual contagion, sexual poison, so related to prostitution here too, and sort of a very sex negative view of, of prostitution or sex workers. So a man is motivated to use one of these devices if he's trying to keep himself protected from STIs. He's probably less motivated by a concern over getting the woman pregnant in that case. And then all of that too is in um, a heteronormative context. So it's not just men and women who have sex, right? The, the issues are different if we're talking same-sex encounters too. I'm curious to know about why people throughout the entire history of humankind have sought to control babies' appearance on the scene because that's always been, I mean, there's probably different reasons, right? It's not like they hate babies, right? <laughs> yeah, certainly. So the, the question sort of goes in both directions. So women often want to control uh, because it, it's hard to have babies. It takes a huge toll on your body. And if you do it too often, there's significant risks to your to your health and to your life. Before modern obstetrics and gynecology and obstetrical medicine, having a baby was very dangerous for a woman. There's up to a, a 50% chance of, of death pretty commonly to either the mother or the child. These are very high stakes issues. I think generally women don't want to have too many babies because it can kill you. <laughs> and it's just incredibly difficult if you don't have a lot of help, if you're poor in particular. There's so many conflicts and mixed messages around birth control between the Catholic Church, even I'm thinking about uh, the American white supremacist and incel champion Nick Fuentes, who recently dined with Donald Trump, and he's advising Kanye West on his 2024 bid for president. He recently <laughs> opined that, um, not, yeah, that's a laugh line, isn't it? He, uh, <laughs> sorry, Nick, Fuentes, <laughs> Nick Fuentes recently opined that along with not being allowed to work or to vote, women should also not be allowed birth control. So there's also this idea that it, it seems like it's controlling women to force birth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so there's a there's a strong misogyny, a sexism, a, a patriarchal notion of women's proper role at work here. It's pretty horrific actually that it's still around that sort of notion in the 21st century, as you just quoted. Doing some other research, I came across this uh, line from Napoleon, actually. Women are nothing but machines for producing children, Napoleon said. So that notion that it, it is woman's proper 
role to be pregnant, to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and popping out babies as often as possible. It's a very ancient patriarchal notion. And Catherine, I'm wondering, you just made me think about another thing, which is, isn't there this idea throughout history that women are actually dangerously licentious? Uh And if you have women have too much freedom, (laughs) i.e. they have control over whether they get pregnant or not, like, oh, Katie, bar the door, all bets are off. (laughs) These ladies are out and they're going to be sucking those men dry. I think underlying it is this fear of women, right? A fear and anxiety about the the power of women because there is this magical ability in the female body to reproduce, to produce new life. I think from a sort of a psychoanalytic point of view, there's an envy, uh, there's a fear of female power. So there's a sense of control. This is a, a negative, dangerous power and we need to keep it under wraps. That's one reading definitely of what's going on here in this history. There also seems to be, Catherine, particularly in the early 20th century, as we see the rise of nation states, there's the idea that a nation becomes more powerful by adding to its population. So that birth control is a bad thing because the more of us there are, the more powerful we become. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That's definitely true in the United States where I'm based. So that whole history of American colonialism, building a new nation, certainly given the vastness of the country, as one very much linked to a need to increase the population. So it's done through immigration, but then it's also done through uh, encouraging people, families, women to have babies. So the the state, the government, sees itself as having an interest in not just encouraging large families, but in actively discouraging the use of birth control. You can link it to capitalism also, the development of, we need more workers for the 19th century uh, rise of capitalism here to fill the factories. We then get the idea of birth control being a good thing. But yes, as we've done our research on this, we've come across some people who, when you first start reading about their aims, sound quite laudable and likable. Yeah. And then we get the idea that, hang on, there are certain sort of babies who are good and certain sort of babies who are bad. Get rid of those duff ones. Those are clogging up the system. Uh, are you referring to Margaret Sanger? Yeah. Obviously, her work with Planned Parenthood is is still an amazing accomplishment and one that serves women and their health concerns even to this day, despite being under attack in America. She was a, a pioneer. And then she kind of, uh, her enthusiasm took her over the line. And then she started to think, well, while we're at it, let's just think about the good babies, the ones who aren't disordered in any way. And it, it brought her into the eugenics, uh, slightly Nazi side of the situation. Yeah, I think as soon as you get to a phrase slightly Nazi, the alarm bells are going off, aren't they, Katie? Because eugenics is one of those sort of untold parts of pre-war American history in that it wasn't just a few outliers. This was quite a significant movement, wasn't it, Catherine? You're right. Once you start thinking about controlling conception in this darker fringe, you get into the area of eugenics, which was a big movement in the earlier 20th century. To be fair to Margaret Sanger, I think she got into a little bit of a sticky wicket there with her enthusiasms because she then later on, once people were going, oh, it sounds like you're aligning yourself with what's going on in the Nazi party. She walked back from that and maintained that she was never talking about controlling minority populations or black populations, people of color. Mm -hmm. But it just goes to show you how 
controversial this whole idea is of, I guess, fooling with Mother Nature. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, what's essential in this narrative is for Margaret Sanger, she was she was making the point that women should have rights. Women should have the right to control their reproductive health, to have access to birth control, to have safe birth practices. And that's incredibly important for women to be able to have any sort of bid for equality in society. The free love movement, the early access to birth control movement was making those points about women's equality. I think as the, mm. the the 20th century progressed and then into the 21st century, we're talking about sort of a new gender and sexual revolution right now makes broader claims about equality. So you don't have gender justice or gender equality unless you also have racial equality and disability justice, that all of these aspects of identity intersect and are all part of this vision of uh, what true equality and justice uh, would entail. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So the combined oral contraceptive pill, the pill, is cleared for use in the US in 1960. Is this a great leap forward for birth control, Catherine? Is this the game changer? In certain ways, yes, certainly. It promises, at least, whether or not it fully delivers it, but it promises for the first time a much higher degree of efficacy in blocking unwanted pregnancy and allowing women this possibility of really controlling their their reproductive destiny, right? Whether or not they get pregnant and when they, they get pregnant. So putting that choice much more firmly into their own hands. There's repercussions. Uh, one thing I, I hear from my students when I'm, I'm working with them is their dissatisfaction with the pill. And a lot of them are on some form of, uh, my female students on some form of hormonal birth control like this. And they talk about the side effects a lot and how dissatisfied they are with having to bear the brunt of this. So yes, the pill is a huge game changer in that way. But what's sort of shocking and disturbing is the extent to which it's not perfect, right? There's a lot, a lot of significant serious side effects that even now, sort of 50 years later, uh, are still with us and that haven't been really resolved. And there's still the sense that it's women's responsibility, right? So some of the most interesting debates I have in class with my students are, uh, what about the male pill? And the pros and cons of that, those are in really interesting discussions when we start getting into that in class. Because I infer from what you're saying that the the boys in your class are not seeing themselves as somebody who would be taking a male <laughs> pill? Yeah, well, they say, sure, I'd be happy to take a pill if there were no side effects at all. And I knew that it wouldn't affect me down the road in any way. And then the, the women students immediately shoot up their hands and they say, well, well, I have to deal with all these side effects. And the guys say, really? I didn't know. Wow. <laughs> and some of the women think, wow, this would be great. Like heterosexual students who are uh, in opposite sex relationships, they say, if the guys could deal with this and I didn't have to, that would be an incredible relief. But then they also say, could you ever trust him to uh. be particularly in some sort of a hookup, one-off situation? And the guy says, oh yeah, I'm on the pill. Don't you worry, honey. <laughs> could you You're really right. trust him? So the, the gender politics that brought about the pill and the revolution that it did create in the 1960s, it's a game changer, but a lot of the issues are still with us. I'm really struck, Catherine, by 1966, feature on the pill and morality that was in the magazine U.S. News and World Report. And it asked, is the pill regarded as a license for promiscuity? Can its availability to all women of childbearing age lead to sexual anarchy? Oh, my answer to that is I hope so. <laughs> more moral consternation came from the author Pearl Buck, who took an even more dire doomsday approach when she warned in a 1968 Reader's Digest article, Everyone knows what the pill is. It is a small object, yet its potential effect upon our society may even be more devastating than the nuclear bomb. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty apocalyptic. <laughs> it's very apocalyptic. It seems like, uh, Catherine, what do you think? Was the pill a convenient scapegoat for the sexual revolution amongst 
social conservatives. Yeah, so it becomes sort of a shorthand for that, that sense of free love leading to anarchy in the streets, a breakdown of social morals. There's a lot of sort of hypocrisy there also, double standards, the virgin whore dichotomy. Uh, So men always having been allowed more sexual leeway than women. So if the pill means that women can have sex without being shackled by pregnancy in the same way, then it can rouse those fears of what's going to happen next. Um, Women getting too uppity, getting too much of the upper hand and control over their own fate. Right. We can't have that. No, no, no. That could be very, I mean, it could lend itself to the end of patriarchy, my God. So the pill was very much part of that uh, sort of second wave feminist movement, a progress of women's rights, getting more control over their own reproductive fate and therefore being able to participate more in the workplace and gaining more social power. And that's definitely part of what we've seen and the the progress of um, women's history now into the, the 21st century, a lot more workplace equality. It's also better for countries. It's better for, you know, the, the, the actual financial stability of the country that you have more women in the workforce. This conversation is also making me think how it's even more complicated than the double standards and how unfair and hypocritical it is to have to actually acknowledge the presence of female sexuality. The impact of the pill on women in the 60s must have been a little bit of a a poison chalice because, yeah, it's easing the burden on women, giving them more independence. It's almost like the science had advanced, but the social mores hadn't because women Mm -hmm. would be condemned as, you know, being harlots uh, and loose for doing the very thing that the pill enabled them to do. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think about the sort of a new gender and sexual revolution now in the the 21st century where we are at the moment and what's different from this earlier moment that we're talking about in the 1960s, uh, the the sexual revolution then and that moment of, of change for women's rights and women's history. There can be, like you're saying, this sort of this new pressure in an opposite direction. Now you've got to be out there. You've got to be a sexual player also. There's new pressure on women as a mark of modernity. It's something that my students still talk about now. There's slut shaming, but there's also prude shaming, right? If you're not engaging in hookup culture on college campuses, for example. So ideally, we get to a point, and I think this is happening with this intersectional justice that I was talking about. I think the Me Too movement has really been very important here also, talking about uh, equality and a notion of positive sexuality that doesn't impose a sexual script on people of any gender, that one has to be sexually active as some mark of, I don't know, liberation, but also that doesn't impose double standards, slut shaming, prude shaming. I see a a slow progress on this front. Uh, Ideally, we're getting to a moment of real equity and justice around issues of gender and sexuality, where people are allowed the, the authentic freedom to live out their own gender identity, their own uh, sexuality without shame, without imposed scripts. So boys don't belong in a little box and girls are, are not either virgin or whores. Uh, we are, we're all complex human beings. We live out our gender and sexual identity 
Uh, and there would be the, the reproductive health care and family planning support for everyone uh, in the context of really high quality sexuality education to our young people all the way into adulthood. That's, that's sort of a utopic vision of where we could be, where the history of birth control could get us. Um, you know, without being naive on my positive happy days, that's where I hope we're heading. So the pill is cleared in the US in 1960. By 1961 in the UK, it is available on prescription via the NHS, but it's not all smooth sailing for the birth control movement. It's not until 1965, Katie, that the Supreme Court passes a ruling that enables almost every American access to the pill. And then in 1968, we come across our old friend Pope Paul VI, who we did an episode about recently, and his Humani Vitae decree which is the Catholic Church saying, Catherine, we don't like this progress one little bit. Yeah, so well, we talked a little bit about the role of religion in all of this. Anxiety, guilt, uh, going all the way back to that moment in the, the Garden of Eden story where once Adam and Eve realized they were naked, they were ashamed of their nudity. The church sees itself as having an interest in children as a gift from God, that there's this this magical divine element like we were talking about earlier, and therefore seeing itself as having a legitimate reason to state what is ethical versus sinful, unacceptable in controlling this gift from God. Well, for anyone who's concerned about Pope Paul VI putting the kibosh on uh, putting it about with the new freedoms of the birth control pill, there was another pope, the Pope of Sex, Hugh Hefner, on the <laughs> other side, hailing a, a celebration of the single life and sexual exploration. And I think the pill was probably part of this. You know, Playboy magazine was uh, letting your uh, players, mostly male players know that uh, options were out there and the options were increasing. But on the other side, we also had a Helen Gurley Brown with her book, Sex and the Single Girl. And she championed career women and open sexuality. And she was mothballing that old maid stereotype. So I don't know if it was a chicken and egg situation, but certainly that pill came along with this new concept of, hey, it wasn't all just come out of your family home and then start your own family. You could have a little freedom to uh, let your freak flag fly. (laughs) The pill and the sudden availability of much more reliable birth control did create this change in society as a whole. The gay rights movement was very important at the same time, sort of alongside this history we're tracing in the 1960s. So the rise of the gay rights movement entailed a freedom to love as one chooses. It's a time of anti-war protests also. It's a time in the 1950s and 1960s of uh, civil rights protests and real significant development on the racial equity front uh, in the United States, certainly. So all of these come together. So you're talking about a revolution, a change, uh, an effort toward justice on fronts of gender, sexuality, race and ethnicity, disability rights uh, starting up as well. It's a lot. It's a lot happening all at once. Uh, So it creates for turbulence, but ultimately a real narrative of progress and uh, development in the direction of justice. I love the powerful simplicity of the pill. 
Like, you don't even have to ask what kind of pill it is. It's just the pill. Oh, Uh we know uh what kind of pill it is. We know why you're taking it. We know what you think you're going to be doing with that pill. The fact that we still call it the pill, it's self-evident how important an aspect of, of medicine, of science, of social history this thing is. You're right. And that's true still today with my students. They just talk about the pill and everybody knows what that is. And yet we live in a pharmaceutical moment where there's a whole lot of pills going around, right? And people are taking all sorts of pills, but it does still have that iconic status. Uh, There was a a cultural tipping point from before and after that moment that's indicated by that, that still iconic status of the phrase, the pill. We've been talking about this as a a 1960s issue, but of course, birth control in other forms is absolutely a huge issue in America today, not least since the Supreme Court ruled in June 2022 that there is no constitutional right to abortion in the US. Is this the same argument reframed, Catherine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're, we're in a very complicated uh, moment, often like an infuriating uh painful moment in, um, in America in terms of reproductive health. A big issue that, that the Supreme Court has been grappling with in all of this is the issue of privacy. That early moment in some of those Supreme Court cases from the 1960s that you were talking about before, they were decided on this issue of privacy. And so that's what changed in this most recent, in the overturning of Roe versus Wade, saying that the government, again, once again, it has this this right to control these issues. So losing the right to privacy it has very far-reaching implications. And that's why just right now in the United States, the Senate has just passed a, a bilateral bill with 12 Republican senators signed on to it. Now it's going to the House and will go through to once again ratify the right to same-sex marriage across the country. Uh, because it came into question again after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. If that that right to privacy is now under question again, if we've maybe lost it so that uh, the privacy of the the medical office where a woman and her doctor get to decide what happens to her pregnancy, whether it can be terminated or not, if that's no longer federally protected, uh, what's next that could be lost? What about this right to same-sex marriage that was uh, it was determined, it was decided in 2015 as a federal right, but could that be undergirded now by another Supreme Court decision? So the government's, we, we keep going back and forth on this issue uh, in America. What, what, what is the rule around privacy? What do we have the right to determine on our own? The right to control when we get pregnant, if the pregnancy can be terminated, the right to have sex with whom we please, given that it's consensual and all adults are agreeing, uh, the right to marry, even the, the right of interracial marriage was maybe thrown into into question again with Clarence Thomas's most recent comments around when Roe v. Wade was was overturned. And that's a real irony, given that he's in an interracial marriage himself. Well, he just wants to be fair. <laughs> Catherine, in the course of human history and social well-being, how significant is the advent 
of the birth control pill? Well, I, th- I think it's hugely significant. As we said, it promised this higher efficacy of blocking pregnancy than anything before that. A watershed moment, to be sure. Not a perfect one, because it imposes more of a burden on women uh, than men, as we've talked about. And there remain significant medical side effects or risks. Not a final moment, I would say, uh, but certainly a watershed moment. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I've learned a lot. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Don't forget the goat aprons, Catherine. (laughs) Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. That was a very provocative conversation, Tom. Wasn't it just, Katie? Uh, One of the things that I was reading recently is that more young men are getting vasectomies, Mm. taking control of the little swimmers. Yeah, there's a phrase, I've got a few friends who've had vasectomies, and there's a phrase that every single one of them uses when talking about the experience of having a vasectomy, and that is the smell of burning flesh. (laughs) Don't let that put you off, boys. It's okay. It's just like burnt hair. It's fine. I think it is. Katie, I was finding myself wondering why there aren't more references to the pill in popular culture, but we've both found an example. Yes, yes. There is a Loretta Lynn song from 1975, one of her biggest songs and most controversial, apparently, called The Pill. Some sample lyrics, this old maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. The clothes I'm wearing from now on won't take up so much yardage. The incubator is overused because you've kept it filled. The feeling good comes easy now since I've got the pill. Yes, Loretta. Yeah, Loretta. The one that I've got, Katie, is not set to music. This is by Philip Larkin. Now, you may well be aware of Philip Larkin's Annus Mirabilis, where he talks about sex being invented in 1963 between Lady Chatterley and the Beatles' first LP. This is a poem called High Windows. I'm going to change a single word in here, Katie, for reasons of decorum. And it goes a bit like this. When I see a couple of kids and guess he's her and she's taking the pill or wearing a diaphragm, I know this is paradise. Oh, paradise is a place where people can have guilt-free, barrier-free sex. <laughs> the barrier being a babe. So listeners, if you want another podcast to listen to, why not check out our previous episode about British politician sex? It's all about the Profumo affair, the British sex scandal that has rocked the world 
to this very day. And if you would like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. We do not at this point have goat spunk aprons, but we will look into it. <laughs> Please do not withhold that essential sartorial item from me for very much longer, Tom. Now, our next episode is all about a fellow who went by the handle Ho Chi Minh. And Tom, did you know that Ho Chi Minh was a mere four foot eleven? Four foot eleven. Small dog, big bark. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors 
give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.